Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together and worship you and glorify Jesus Christ, our only hope, the Savior of the world, Lord, our Savior, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, that you've forgiven us in Christ, and that you have a plan for us to use us for your glory and to bless us for all eternity. What a great deal that we have in you, Lord. And so we worship you today. We rejoice in you today. We glorify you today, and we pray that you speak to our hearts right now as we get into your word, that you would um, transform us, Lord, into your image, that you would um, conform us to you, Lord, and weed out things in our hearts and minds, Lord, that aren't of you, and do that spiritual heart surgery, Lord, that we need to continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ so that we can be all that you've called us to be in him and lights in this dark world. Lord, use us mightily wherever we are for your glory. Um, As your word says, the time is short, so be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of your time for the days are evil. So Lord, help us to make the most of our time to worship you, serve you, and all that we do. So bless this time, bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the title of today's message is Who is Adequate for These Things? Who is Adequate for These Things? I'm taking another um, off-roading trip from Colossians. Lord willing, we'll be back in the book of Colossians next week. But the Lord's put something else on my heart, and that's this. Uh, During Tuesday night, uh, the men's group, we went through different passages in the Bible and the passage that I want to look at today was one of the passages that we looked at on Tuesday night together, and it kind of was in my mind and in my heart, and I was thinking about it a couple days after the men's group, and I thought, okay, this is, this is what I want to teach on. And I believe the longer that you're a Christian and you go through different seasons in your life as a Christian, the more that God's going to impress certain parts of the Bible into your heart into your mind. There's certain things that are going to just grab a hold of you. There's certain things that are going to stand out. All scripture is inspired by God. It's all profitable. But the longer you walk through seasons of life, the the more you go through trials and different things, there's going to be certain things and maybe, uh, maybe certain passages or verses you can resonate with. Maybe they're verses that you memorized as a child or uh, in your teenage years or you when you came to the Lord when you were older in life and you're like, this verse just really stood out to me. And God's done that with certain passages in the Bible that I just keep going back to. But also, as I go through new seasons of life, I grab a hold of another passage. And I'm like, it's almost like I haven't read it before. I'm like, where was this at? And I start reading it and grabbing a hold of it and meditating on it. And a couple years ago, there was a time period where every time I'd read the Bible, I'd have a pen in my hand, I'd have a highlighter, and I would just be going to town. I'm just underlining things, and I'm putting stars next to things, and I'm I'm highlighting, and you look at some of the pages of my Bible, and there's just, and it kind of defeats the purpose when you're highlighting the whole page, because then it's all highlighted, so it's, but, you know, First and Second Corinthians, a lot of it's highlighted and underlined, and the passage that I want to look at today, if, you know, Here's my Bible. There it is. You can kind of see it. It's kind of a mess. And I was told in school, you write too hard. And they told my mom this when I was like six years old. They're like, I don't know why your son writes so hard. Like they thought I was angry or something. And I don't think I was. I don't think I am today, but that stuck with me. So my Bible actually starts to rip as I I write on it too hard. And there's, and these pages are thin. You know, they got to fit 1,600 pages and not make the Bible this big. So anyhow... All that to say, the passage we're looking at today has stood out and made an impression in my heart and my mind. And um, this passage that I want to look at is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12 is where I want to begin. And I want to take us to 2 Corinthians 3, 6. So it's 12 verses or so that I want to go ahead and read for us this morning. 2 Corinthians 2.12, the Apostle Paul states, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ 
and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life Paul was a man who was ambitious for the gospel of Jesus Christ he loved Christ he took risks for Christ and at times he felt the weight of it it was so overwhelming that he said who is adequate for these things and this actually just reminded me I I want to do um like evangelism more, right? That's what God's been putting on my heart. Just to simply put it, you need to share the gospel more. And praise God, yesterday, um, I was in Texas, actually, um, for Travis Key and Leanne Key, and uh, some of you knew Greg, and I was there uh, able to help participate in and officiate the funeral for Greg. And I got the opportunity to preach the gospel. And I was literally pleading with them at one point. I'm like holding out my arms, like come to Jesus. And you know, that's the picture in the scripture of God. He says, all day long, I've outstretched my hands to an obstinate and disobedient people. That's God saying, Israel, please turn to me and live. That's the heart of the father, the heart of love, the heart of wanting to save people. And I, I told the people in this congregation there, that showed up for this funeral, some of whom were co-workers of Greg. I said, God uses evangelists and he uses pastors and he uses Christians. We're all body, we're all part of the body of Christ and we are Christ in this world and we are pleading you to turn to Jesus and live. I said, God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. And so I did my best to give a heartfelt plea for them to come to the Lord and uh, people came up to me afterwards and said that they were encouraged. And I think one person told Travis, I'm really something along the lines of I'm going to start taking this stuff seriously. It seems like you guys really love the Lord. And so, you know, in the scripture, it says if one person repents, if one person believes, the angels in heaven rejoice. And so it's like Jesus says he'll leave the 99 and go for that one, you know. And sometimes it's like we want thousands to be saved and it's like, Lord, just give us one at least, you know, but he takes care of the fruit. We just, we sow the seed. We preach the gospel. We minister as best we can, and we leave the results to him. And so I think at least once a month, you know, this just came on my heart when um, they were doing worship. I thought, you know, we need to get out and evangelize. So um, I'm just <laughs> saying this right now. Maybe once a month after church, we can go down to Boise and just hand out tracts or um, however the Lord leads, whether that's you praying, whether that's you buying tracks for the people that go out, if it's just me and another brother, if there's five of you, if there's three of you, if there's 10 of you, maybe once a month. I think that's at least a good starting point. I think some of us can handle that in the busyness of life, and perhaps in the future um, it can be more than that. Um, so look out for a flock note or an update on that. I don't know if that's going to be next weekend or, or when, but I just we got to get the word out right? And many of you guys are sharing in different places and different ways. There's so many avenues to get the word out today, whether that's online or at work with your friends or co-workers or family. We're to be his hands and feet wherever we are. But one of the reasons I, and one of the things that was impressed on my heart when I came up here to Idaho was to reach the younger people, the, the colleges, the high schools, and things like that. And I just feel like it's eating at my heart the more I don't do that as much as I should, then 
um, I'm being convicted. So I'm just sharing that with you today. So keep me accountable on that. If I slide back and say, oh, okay, life's too busy now, just, you know, kick me and tell me to do it. Okay. So I recently uh, read an article and the guy stated in this article, he was a former pastor. He says, quote, where there's ambition, there must be risk always. And I thought that that, that line stood out to me. Where there's ambition, there's going to be risk. I think I heard another pastor say recently, like, you know, I don't want to butcher it, but men are built, men and women of courage are built upon like the storms of life. Ships aren't, ships aren't built to sit in the harbor. It was something along those lines. Like they're built to withstand the storm. They're built to cross seas. They're built to go on voyages. They're built to do things. They're not just built to sit there in the harbor forever. And God built us to do things. He's given us his Holy Spirit to do things for him, to be ambitious, to take risks for Christ. And that looks different for different people. For some people, that might be adopting a child. For some people, that's raising their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and spreading the gospel at work. For another person, that's going to the uttermost parts of the earth and going to some unreached people group that speaks another language and they learn that and language and they get the gospel to them. And f it's different for all of us. The bottom line is, obedience and when you're obedient to the Lord you're ambitious for the Lord he's going to bring you to places where perhaps you never thought you'd go and do things you never thought you would do this article it was titled the uncommon ambition behind ordinary greatness and the man who wrote it Dave Harvey uh, also states quote whether it's a church friend a prodigal parent or a foster child following God's call involves a great deal of risk all the time. Like opening up a home to foster kids, it's the kind of risk that doesn't usually make headlines. In this passage we looked at today, the Apostle Paul wasn't exactly uh, making headlines when he lived. He, he wasn't making headlines at least as a prominent preacher who was uh, driving around in his Maserati living in his 15-bedroom oversized house on the beachfront. Now, if that's you, then, well, praise God. You, you have 15 rooms, though, so fill them somehow. Invite some orphans in there. Use it for the glory of God, right? I always wondered that when I'm driving by these houses, and it's like 20 bedrooms, and it's a husband and wife living in there. And I'm like, okay, you got, you got a weight room, and you got a guest room, and you got a pool, you got arcade room. Okay, you got 16 other rooms. Like, what are you doing with these? I don't know, but to each his own, right? Um, use it for God's glory. But, hey. Paul gave everything for Jesus, literally everything. He gave his life to the point where they threw stones at him. He's dead, and it says in the book of Acts, God raised him up, and there he went, right back to preaching the gospel. And, you know, the Corinthian church, here he's giving everything, and this Corinthian church is like, we don't believe you're an apostle, right? We don't really trust that God's sent you. The churches are looking at Peter and and James and those who knew Jesus personally and Paul you're a Johnny come lately you're just coming on the scene now and we're questioning your motives Paul and maybe you're in it for the money or whatever they were saying he was feeling the brunt of that imagine giving everything literally everything for the gospel and people don't trust your motives people don't love you in return people don't even respect you or honor you for who you are in the Lord it's amazing that he kept moving forward in Jesus. One thing's for sure, he made headlines in heaven. Amen? And he, his life makes headlines today in the hearts and minds of Christians around the world. I love how God works. I mean, billions of copies, literally billions of copies of the Bible have gone throughout the world. The most sold and published and produced and sent out book in all of the world. And so when you look at Paul, the Jews rejected him. The Gentiles rejected him and persecuted him. And ultimately the Romans, according to tradition, put him to death. So literally everyone in his life was rejecting him. And God's given us great men and women. Leah was telling me about Amy Carmichael. We like reading these biographies. There's a guy named C.T. Studd. That's a pretty cool name. Uh, C.T. Stud, you know, you're a stud, right? So 
George Mueller, Jim Elliott, these missionaries who were willing to go to hard places. Jim Elliott, who went to this tribe that people were begging him, don't go to this tribe. They've pretty much killed everyone who goes there. And he's like, God's put it on my heart to reach them. And, he, you know, go look up that whole story. But he ended up dying over there. They speared him to death for the gospel. And, um, you know, George Mueller, who was a pastor, who God put it on his heart, um, reached the orphans. There's orphans all around. Someone needs to reach them. He could have been like, I'm a pastor. I need to shepherd my church. I need to feed the flock. I don't have time for that. People know George Mueller as this man who took in thousands of orphans during his life and started all these orphanages. And when he died, I think there was thousands of orphans there crying and weeping over his life. He said, I just took a step of faith. And then he retired from the ministry at, in his 70s, said, okay, I'm done preaching. I've, you know, I've preached for 30 years. I'm going to travel around the world for the next 15 years or so and get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So from like 75 to like 88 or something like that, he became a missionary, traveled around the world preaching the gospel. And so we have these amazing pictures of Christ, these people that blessed others and gave their life for him and that should be an example for us th for us that should spur us on to love and good deeds not that we have to do exactly what they did but to take risks to be ambitious for the lord to take steps of faith and that looks different in our different lives you know paul calls it here being a fra a fragrance to god a sweet aroma to God. We want our lives to be like a sweet aroma. When you walk into a room, it's like a breath of fresh air where people are encouraged. You're, they're given joy when you're around them because they see Christ in you. They see the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the truth of Christ, the encouragement of Christ so that when you're around them, that's rubbing off onto them. And we can't allow the discouragements of life and sin and whatever's creeping into our lives and as we're going to talk about in a minute, you are a letter of Christ. What letter are people reading when they see you, when they talk to you? And then that's when we can pull out all the excuses, right? Yeah, but you don't know how hard my life is, and you don't know what I'm going through, and maybe not, right? We go through different things, but we don't want to justify reasons why we're in the depths of despair at all times. We want to get out of that. As we talked about, I think, last week, we don't want to stay in Psalm 42. We don't want to stay in Psalm 51. It's time to graduate, get to Psalm 63. It's time to graduate, get to the end of Psalm 73, where Asaph is like, whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail. God, you are the strength of my heart. You're my portion forever. I want to tell of your works. You want to be so on fire for the Lord that you're just ready to go out. You're ready to shake people up. You're just ready to be joyful for the Lord. That's... That's how God wants us to spend our days. We don't want days and months and years to pass by and just and be in these slumbers of despair. And they happen, though. Even Charles Spurgeon, a great, people look to him. He's the prince of preachers. He wrote books on despair. He's 22 years old, preaching to thousands of people. Didn't go to college, didn't go to seminary, just read a ton of books and trusted the Lord and had the Holy Spirit preaching to thousands of people and someone yells fire 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 and they run out of this sanctuary chapel and they trample each other and like five people died and several people died and he goes i don't know if i can ever preach again young guy 22 he dealt with that the rest of his life he dealt with the pain of that um, perhaps maybe i could have done something different or whatever questions were going through his mind and was faithfully preaching for 30 more years till God took him in his 50s. And that's another thing. They didn't have microphones back then. You're preaching to thousands, five to 10,000 people without a microphone. And he knew the labor that it was. He almost, you almost have to yell when you're preaching that loud. If you read biographies on him, they'll say he, he was ready to wear himself out for the Lord. He knew that he probably wouldn't last long, maybe into his 40s or 50s or 60s, but he's like, I'm gonna give it all to the Lord. And I think there was a plague that went through England and other pastors weren't visiting their parishioners and he said, I'm going. So he'd go by their sickbed and go pray over them and he's like, if I get sick and die, I get sick and die. And so it's just cool when you read these stories about different men of God and we don't believe everything that all of them believed and we have different theology in different places, but we can still look up to them and 
see all the good that they did for the Lord and desire to follow in those footsteps as they followed Christ. And that's what Paul says. Follow me as I follow Christ. We all need examples to press on in the faith. And wherever Jesus went, he was a fragrance unto God. That's what the scripture teaches. The blind received sight. The lame walked. The lepers, lepers were healed. The deaf heard. The dead were raised up. The poor had the gospel preached to them. I love these officers in John chapter 7. The religious leaders told these officers, it's time to arrest Jesus. Bind him up and bring him to us. And you hear these officers say in John 7, 46, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. They're like, we're not binding him up. We're not taking him. They were in awe of him. They were like, this man, no one has spoken like this man. (laughs) We're not bringing him to you guys. And that's what happened when people encountered Jesus. There was this aroma about him. There was something different about him. He spoke with authority. He spoke the truth. And above all, it was grounded and rooted in love. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. His offering, his, the culmination of his life was an offering to God as he went to the cross, which was a fragrant aroma, spilling out his life to God for us. So Christians around the world, they might not have the nicest clothes. They might not make lots of money. You travel around the world, you might meet Christians that don't smell good. You might not even have to travel around the world for that. I was Like I said, I was in Texas, it was 105 degrees. You got to put deodorant on like every four hours when you're over there. It wears off. But you can smell, but you are still a fragrant aroma to God. Isn't that great? Okay. You can be well-pleasing to him no matter what you look or smell like in this life. We all want to smell good, though. So that was Paul. 1 Corinthians 4.11. This is what he says. To this present hour, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're poorly clothed, we're roughly treated, and we're homeless. Not the best resume. Not the best credentials there, right? Most of us are doing better than that. Poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. He's looking for the next meal. He's looking at everyone around him. He's looking at all the other teachers, and man, they're doing just fine. You know, they're like the Joel Osteens of the day. Imagine you're a preacher just slaving away at the gospel and reaching people for the Lord and you're like looking for a crumb of bread and you see these other guys living in their mansions. 1 Corinthians 4.13 When we're slandered, we try to console. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even till now. We're the scum of the world, Paul says, dregs of all things. We're like gum on the bottom of someone's shoe. That word dregs, parapsoma, means wiped off filth. 1 Corinthians 4.13. Wiped off filth, dirt rubbed off. NIV translates it garbage. ESV translates it refuse. We're filth, scum, refuse to the world around us, but a fragrant aroma, a sweet aroma aroma, sweet smell to God. Have you ever had an open door in life that you felt was just wide open for you? A new opportunity, a new job, a new step of faith, a new direction, something in your life where you're like, you've prayed about it, you thought about it, maybe you got confirmation from others and you took a step of faith and you did it. And then right after you do that, or not too long after, you're hit with a trial. Or you're hit with a big trial or many trials or relentless trials. That's what we see with Paul here in our text for today. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me and the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. The door 
flung wide open for him. He walks through it, and what does he walk through it to meet? I, verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit. It seems like contradiction, right? Door open from the Lord, no rest. What's going on here? That describes Paul's life, right? We think open door means easy sometimes. We think open door, oh, you know, this is, the Lord called me to this, so everything therefore is just going to go smooth. Jesus said, okay, disciples, go to the other side, right? Get in the boat. Doors open for you. Let's go. There's the storms, and they're freaking out because they're not prepared. They don't realize that open door doesn't always lead to ease and comfort and these things. No, here's the storm, but guess what? I'm with you in the storm. That's the thing that they weren't understanding. The one who upholds all things by the power of his word is right there next to them. So they don't, ha- they don't need to fret. They don't need to be scared. They just need to look over and say, I trust you. You're in control of this and you have all power and authority, so we're just going to wait on you. This is happening for some reason. We're just going to cling to you. Maybe that's what they should have done, just all huddled around Jesus and just gave him, given him a hug and said, we're trusting you right now, okay? Let's be honest, Jesus. We're a little worried about what's going on, but we trust you. But instead, they're freaked out. Don't you know we're perishing? Don't you know, Jesus, we're about to die? Oh, you of little faith. Why are you doubting? Calms a storm. And that's us. The disciples many times are a picture of us. We're going through the storms of life. Things get hard. We think we had an open door, an opportunity. Perhaps we know it. We feel the confirmation, and then it's like storm, storm, trial, trial, and then we, we freak out instead of holding on to him and saying, you're the one that's brought me here. You're with me. You're not going to leave me nor forsake me. I'm clinging to you. I trust you're doing something in this. That needs to be our heart. So Paul elaborates on this text here today in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6. This open door that led him to Macedonia, he states in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6, he he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. You see that throughout the scripture, but God. Here's what's on this side of the equation. Distress, affliction, conflicts without, fears within, everywhere we go, turmoil, but God. God's the God of comfort. That was the message I brought yesterday. God's the God of comfort. God's the God of hope. God's the God of truth. So when you're going through trials in life, turn to the God who comforts. Turn to the God who gives hope and turn to Jesus Christ who said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 14, 27, Paul said, an open door for the faith of the Gentiles was granted. That open door led to more trials, more persecution, yet it was an open door for the Gentiles to come to faith. So open doors come with risks. They come with sacrifice. They come with many adversaries, yet Paul says, I triumphed. I triumphed in Christ. Greater is he that's in me than he who's in the world. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That was one of the last things he told his disciples. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't forget that. Remember, I'm always with you. No matter what you're going through, I'm right there. Philippians chapter 4 says, God is near. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything with supplication, With prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And it says right before that, God is near. He's right there. And we can forget that as well. It's like, God, you're up there somewhere. Are are you hearing my prayers? I'm crying out to you. I feel like they're going against the roof here and coming right back. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm right there. I'm near to you. Cling to me. Hold to me. Turn to my word. Grab my word. I've given it to you to feed you, to minister to you, to strengthen you, to get through whatever life brings your way. Then we look at verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. There we see it again. But God, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. Paul didn't stay focused on the circumstances around him. That's where we get off track. 
whatever trial you've gone through or are going through, whatever struggle it may be, whatever's bringing you despair and heartache or causing you to drift from the Lord, if you focus all your attention on that, you're going to be miserable. You are going to just be a wreck. You are just going to be anxious. You are just, you're not going to make any progress in your Christian walk with the Lord. Paul didn't stay there. He fought to see God and his glory and the big picture that God is the God of comforts. God is the God of hope. God's going to get me through this. He's doing something in it. God works out all things for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's preparing something in me. He's building something in me, some sort of endurance, some characteristic. He's doing something. I'm trusting him. As the song You've Already Won states, there's future grace that's mine today so I can face tomorrow. Jesus Christ has won for tomorrow. I can't read my own writing. That happens often. They asked for my notes yesterday after I taught uh, and shared at this funeral. It was a great funeral. Keep Travis and um, Leanne and them in your prayers. Um, but a couple people's like, can I have some of your notes? You shared a lot of great scriptures. And I'm like, y- you're not going to be able to read this. I'm like, I'll type them up and what's your email or something? I'll send them to you. But I got to get better at that. <laughs> I write too hard. Yeah, I got to soften up on the writing. Um, I'm always just adding notes everywhere and like lines over here. And it's like, that's how my mind works. But if someone else tried to read this, it they wouldn't last a s- couple seconds. But the song ends, or at least this section of it, all I need you will provide just like you always have. He gives the grace sufficient for the moment. Do not be anxious for tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I love that verse. Because I don't know about you guys, but it's tomorrow I fret about a lot. And God's saying, you worry about today. Worry about what's in front of you. I'm giving you grace sufficient for this right now. Whatever it is you're going through, my grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in you through weakness. I'll take care of tomorrow. Let's get through today. Many commentators believe that in this passage that we're looking at, that Paul is drawing an analogy from um, a Roman procession or drawing from victors in battle, whether it's the Greeks Persians, Romans, this idea that they all did things pretty similar. This Roman commander would be on a chariot coming through town with other generals there and princes and nobles, but generals of the other side. They just conquered in battle. They just, they just won, and so now they're bringing the generals and the nobles and the soldiers, and they're, they got them tied up. They got their, they've brought them captive back to their native country. So here they are in Rome with, and they're making a mockery of their enemy as they're walking through the streets proclaiming victory. And here's this commander on this chariot, two white horses as they're marching to the capital. And it's a Roman procession. And Paul is drawing from this in this text as he's, as he's talking about triumphing in Christ and having victory in Christ and as they would march they would have these fragrances that they would be um, I guess diffusing or uh, burning incense burning into the air and so these these sweet aromas are filling the city as this general is on that chariot and everyone is just praising him and proclaiming victory and so here Paul is calling upon this Roman parade or procession that these Corinthians would be familiar with and he's saying that's Christ that's Christ if you will on that chariot here he is coming through town victorious he's conquered the grave he's conquered the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world the scripture said he made a public spectacle of them he embarrassed them if you will when he died on the cross he rendered them powerless So here he is marching through and we're victorious with him. So Paul says, give thanks because we triumph in Jesus Christ. So here's the sweet aroma going out and he says, that's us. We're on Paul, we're on Christ's right and left. We're his hands and feet. We're going out into the world and we're a sweet aroma wherever we go. 
And as they're marching through and this sweet aroma's filling the city, they know what that's all about, victory. It's proclaiming victory. So we as Christians are proclaiming Jesus is redeemer. Jesus is king. Bow the knee to him. Thousands, it's stated in history books, would shout, Lo triumphe, as the commander rode through town. Triumph to Rome. Triumph to this commander. And so what we do is we beg and plead and tell people, Yell triumph to Christ. Yell Jesus is Lord. Bow the knee to him. But here's the frustrating thing. Here's the weighty thing. We beg and we plead and we tell people, Turn to Jesus Say Jesus is Lord. Turn to him and live. We pray for them. We plead with them. We use apologetics. We do whatever we can. And then they say, no. I don't really think he's triumphed. I don't think he's king. I don't think he's Lord. I don't, I don't believe the Bible. I believe in science. I believe in evolution. And I'm smart and I have a PhD or whatever it may be. And we're like, but no, like, look. Look what he's done for you. And even look at all the evidences and look at the prophecy and look at Isaiah 53 and look at how detailed it is. And it says he was pierced for our transgressions and all Psalm 22 as well. And Psalm 16 talks about the resurrection from the grave and look at all these prophecies and look at archaeology. And, and they're like, yeah, that's, ju- that's just man-made and that's just put together. And you're pleading with people. And some of us have done this for hours and days and it could be family members. And they're like, yeah, I'm not going to believe. And it just breaks your heart. And you're like, okay, Lord, like, how long do I continue to pour into this person and we have to practice wisdom? Lee and I have struggled with this at times with certain people like, is this throwing pearls before swine now? Are they trampling under the gospel? Like, you know, if we just spent five hours, did we get anywhere or whatever it may be? And so that takes wisdom and it can be overwhelming, especially when you know their end. If they don't turn to Christ and live. And that's what I can hear Paul saying in this passage. I'm giving everything for Jesus. I'm pleading with these churches. Corinthians, turn to Christ and live. He even says in a text, and I think it's a couple chapters, he talks about begging, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's begging them. He's pleading with them. It's breaking his heart that they're not turning to the Lord. And that's where you can hear Paul at the end of verse 16, almost as if it's this cry of exclamation, who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate for these things? It's a heavy burden on his heart that people would come to Christ. And after they come to Christ, that they would truly walk in him and have a real relationship with him. And so as he's seeing with the Corinthian church and the Galatian church and all these churches, he's like, okay, I led you to Christ and it seems like you're walking in him, but now you're believing this over here. You're believing that you need to be circumcised to be saved and you're believing, you're adding this to the gospel. And it's, he's like, have I done all this in vain? Have I labored over you in vain? Like you're on the milk still. You should be on the meat. I'm feeding you a bottle and you're 25 years old. He's like, how many years do I need to labor over you till this catches? Can you imagine? He's spending years with some of these churches. He visits them and pours into them for years. And then he leaves and gets a letter. Oh, they're embracing this false gospel now. Can you imagine? You're spending a year and a half, day after day after day. You're an apostle, an inspired apostle, teaching them the word of God. And you're thinking, surely they're going to grow and be mature. And then you leave and it's like, oh, they're embracing Gnosticism. And you're like, what? Like, it's as if I portrayed as if Christ was crucified publicly to you. That's what he tells the Galatian church. Who has bewitched you? He goes, it's only a spell from the enemy, like witchcraft, that can do this. Because everything I laid out to you was so clear, so precise, so true, that it must be the enemy that's leading you astray. So Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? Who is adequate for these things? Who's adequate to take on the onslaught of the devil day after day? like Paul, who's adequate to take on the reproaches of men and continue to serve, who's adequate to take on the afflictions and persecutions. And Paul uses this word in the next chapter, actually chapter 4, perplexities. 2 Corinthians 4 eight. We're, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not per- despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
2 Corinthians 4.10, always caring about in the body that of the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He says we're perplexed. Literally in the Greek, I'm at a loss. I, I'm doubting. I, I don't know which way to turn. That's what that word means. Perplexed, like, what do you want me to do, Lord? Where, where do you want me to go? I, this isn't making sense. But he's like, I'm trusting you, Lord. Perplexing, or perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Um, keep, I'm going to continue trusting you. I'm like the disciples in the boat. I thought the storm would be over by now, Jesus. I thought you would have calmed it by now, but the storm continues to rage and it seems to go on day after day. But I know you're in the boat with me and I know that you have power over the storm, but why aren't you causing it to stop? And okay, another day goes by and then another day goes by. And if you're Richard Wormbrandt, eight years go by in solitary confinement as you're laying there with rats crawling next to you and they're coming in to beat you again and drug you up and throw you into a freezer and then take you out right before you die. And then you're going, okay, Lord, like when is this storm going to end? You read some of his literature and it's like that's summing up how he was feeling. I know you're with me. I trust you. I'm not going to leave you. I don't want to, but this storm is going on forever. And so who is adequate for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? He started doing Morse code on the sidewall to lead others to Christ. He started slipping papers and doing anything he could to lead others to Christ as this was happening to him. Amazing. Who's adequate like Paul says, conflicts without, fears within. Who's adequate to stay faithful? And what's the answer? The answer is nobody. The answer is, the question is a rhetorical question. Who's adequate for these things? Nobody. Nobody apart from Jesus Christ. Nobody apart from the power of God. The answer is found in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life God allows us to go through things so that we'll cry out to him all the more so that we'll say Lord I'm not adequate but my adequacy is found in you I need your Holy Spirit Lord empower me through your spirit to get through this and get through it faithfully when you sacrifice your life to the Lord and you take risks for him, no matter what they are, when you take these steps of faith, you're going to be asking yourself at times, I'm not, who's adequate for these things? You're going to be saying at times, I'm not adequate for this. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that Paul's saying this. Who's adequate for this? That's a, I believe that's a, a, an approach of humility. It's saying, Lord, I know you're in control. I know you've given me your Holy Spirit, but in and of myself, I'm inadequate. I can't do it. That's when God shows up. The moment you say in the storm, I got this. The moment the disciples say, let's get the sails up. Come on, let's do this and that. Let, let's do this by our own means. We're in trouble. The moment you forget Jesus is there and that you need to rely solely on him. You need to take your orders from him. Okay, we're in the storm. What do you want us? Is there something you want us to do or do you just want to calm this? You just tell us, Lord, you're in control. When you look at the life of Jeremiah, you look at Moses, you look at Gideon in the scripture. Before I went up to speak yesterday, I was just reading about Gideon. I was there holding my Bible and I'm like, listen to what Gideon says. Judges 6.15. Oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's house. You're going to choose me, Lord? I'm the youngest. I'm of the least tribe. Come on, there's got to be somebody else, Lord. Go pick someone like Saul, who's, you know, head and shoulders above everyone else. Well, look how that turned out. Someone who was trusting in themselves. Someone who wasn't saying who is adequate. Someone who's like, I'm adequate. God told me to do this in that city. I'm going to go and do what I want to do. God says, don't summon mediums. I'm going to go ahead and summon a medium and ask for help. Jeremiah said, behold, I don't know how to speak because I'm a youth. 
Moses said in Exodus 3.11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? They're all saying the same thing. I'm not adequate for this. And God said the same thing back to all of them. I'll be with you. I'm with your mouth. I'll sustain you. I'll keep you. I'll conquer for you. And when you look at those three men, God continued to use them mightily. They stayed in that place of humility. It says Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And scholars and commentators go, wait a minute, did he write that about himself? Because he wrote the first books of the bi- first five books. And it says Moses was the most humble man. I don't know. I don't know how they figure that out. But he was humble. Jeremiah, Gideon, they trusted God, and God did amazing things in their life. In their lives. So God answers us through his spirit, by his power, and I believe we're put in situations, like I said, all of us, to feel inadequate at times when we take steps of faith for the Lord. Paul could have taken an easier route. Other things were easier. Other paths in the ministry could have been smoother. He could have taken in the eyes of men a better way. More praise, more accolades, more notoriety, less trials, less hardships, but at what cost? I was reading a book as I was traveling to Texas, and this pastor said he was put in this big church in his 30s, and uh, many people started to leave, and he was feeling the pressure. And he goes, all these people are leaving, and I, I've got this pressure, and I, I need to keep people in the seats. And he goes, it was like a crossroads, like trust the Lord, preach the word, and leave it in his hands, or use the gimmicks of the day. And he's looking back. He's now like in his 40s or 50s, and he goes, I chose the gimmicks of the day. And he goes, the church grew. People stayed in the pews. My colleagues were happy. And he goes, I regret it to this day. I should have just obeyed the Lord, preached the word. And that's a temptation for all of us in life. Let's just take the easier path. Let's take the shortcut. Let's do things our way instead of do things God's way. And that's verse 17. Paul's answer is like, I'm not doing things my way. We're not like many peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That word peddling could be adulterating, could mean corrupting. We're not corrupting the word of God. No, we're not going to do that. That might tickle people's ears. That might get more people in the church. That might get me a bigger pocketbook, but I'm doing things from a sincere heart. I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. And he tells the Galatian church, have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? He's like, I'm going to preach the truth wherever that leads. And he says many. He doesn't say some are peddling the word of God, verse 17. He says many. These false teachers were all around him. They were getting letters from different teachers in Jerusalem and different men who had renown and prestige in that day and they were getting letters and bringing them to the churches and laying them out and saying, look, we're amazing teachers because of the commendations that we're receiving. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, are we commending ourselves again? Do we need letters? Really, do I need, a, do I need to go get a letter from Peter and James that I'm an apostle? Do I need to go get letters from the other apostles to prove to you that I'm sent from Christ? No. I don't need to do that. Paul wasn't going for the seeker-sensitive model. He wasn't going for the hyper-grace model. He wasn't going for the health and wealth and the name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and command it and land it or whatever you want to come up with, (laughs) whatever their little lingos are and their little, yeah, it's annoying, but it's garbage, right? He preached Christ. And sometimes people are like, that's too dry or, you know, I... uh, I just want stories the whole time and obviously Jesus used parables and stories and to illustrate points but at the end of the day if we want to grow in truth if we want to grow in the Lord we need the unadulterated word of God and that's where Paul stayed. So Paul says I'm sent from God and he says in chapter 3 verse 2 as we get ready to bring this to a close Chapter 3, verse 2. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You want some letters, he's saying? 
Look at yourselves, Corinthians. You don't need some letters from Peter and James to prove my apostleship. You are our letter. You're the proof that I am an apostle. You're the fruit that I am sent from God. You guys believe in Christ and are saved? Who brought you that, who brought you that message? Who brought you the Spirit? You're speaking in tongues. You're doing all these healings and ministering to each other by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who brought that? I brought that message. So Paul, you can, you can kind of hear his defensiveness a little bit throughout this passage and throughout this letter. He says, look at me. Look at my scars. He says in the book of Galatians, Galatians 6, 17, for now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. You want to look at these scars? You want to look at these broken bones? You want to look at these wounds? You want to sit down and listen to all the stories I have of fighting the good fight of faith? Come sit down. These are my letter. This is my testimony. This is my proof that I'm an apostle. Don't give me any more trouble. Look at these brand marks that I've bore for Jesus Christ. Look at these wounds. And Corinthians, look at yourselves. You are our letter. So in closing, you're a letter. I'm a letter of Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ, what letter are people reading? Is it a letter that would bring them to Christ? Some people won't pick up a Bible, but they'll listen to you. They might look at you. They might watch your life. What are they reading? Noah was inadequate and God used him mightily to build an ark. Abraham, blessings to the whole world because of this inadequate man. Sarah, she gave birth at around 90 or 100 years old because she trusted the Lord. If you read Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, the entire list is inadequate people. You look at David, you look at Barak, it says Jephthah, Samuel, the prophets, all inadequate men who conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of life of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong. They became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Do we believe that God can do these kind of things in our lives we don't want to be like oh God used them in amazing ways he can't do amazing things today now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us we're not adequate he is let's trust him and be faithful to him